Welcome to Pastor Stephen Samuel's podcast, where it's our desire that you'll be encouraged and empowered to live as a disciple-making follower of Jesus. My heart this morning is I'm going to share a story with you. And listen, we only, we only, we've got another 45 minutes. Man, we have plenty of time. I want to share a word with you this morning that's going to need a little bit of historical backdrop for you to, to catch it, but I believe it's going to set us up for the year to come. Uh, this year, I believe it's 5784 in the Jewish calendar. So this is year 5784. And so the Jews have, by tradition, a, a way of interpreting what God will do every year based on the numbers of that year and the tradition. Now, when we talk about, let's put it this way, when we talk about prophecy and we receive a prophetic word or we believe God for a prophetic word, many times we interpret this as God is going to tell me something that I don't know what's going to happen. Does that make sense? God is revealing to me something unknown in the future. But when the Jewish culture and Hebrew culture, when they speak of prophecy, it's not that God is going to do something that we don't know. It's that God is going to bring to pass what he has already promised. For an example, Daniel was in captivity in Babylon, and he read the scriptures or the prophecies of Jeremiah that 70 years must pass for the Babylonian captivity before they would be delivered. And he, calculating simple math of the time when Israel went into captivity, realized the prophetic word that Israel would be delivered. 70 years was coming. And so he set aside time to fast and pray to align himself, to join with the prophecy of how this would happen. So in the context of the scriptures being written in Jewish culture, when we get a prophetic word from the Lord, it's not that God is going to do something new. It's we're realizing this is what he's doing. Does that make sense? And so I'm telling you, as, as I've read these prophetic words, and, and as we go into this message here this morning, God just wants to show us what he's already been doing for thousands of years, and we're just catching on because we've only been around for about 50 to 70 years. So prophecy in that context is not so much new information. It's just new information. It's old information, I'm sorry, to new people. Does that make sense? And so... To, to, to give you a kind of a perspective of this doorway that God is bringing us into, let me just start with this idea of what the door is before us as a church body at the close of this year and the beginning of next year. What is the door that's open before you? As we begin this year, the Holy Spirit is saying that you have a destiny which God has ordained before you were born for you to become the one he created. Let me make this statement. God's purpose for your life is not to fulfill a sequence of events. God's purpose for your life is for you to become the one he created you to be, the condition of your heart. For you to become the fullness of who he is, Jesus, in physical form. You're to become someone that you weren't born with. It's a new nature he's put in you. And that's his purpose. So whether you're a plumber, you're a roofer, you're a mechanic, you're a CEO, you're a doctor, or a lawyer. If you don't become what God's called you to do, then you'll never fulfill your purpose. You're to become the son and the daughter of the Most High God. And in that becoming, you play a part in fulfilling God's desire in the world. I know a lot of us think, well, what am I going to do to change the world? If you'll become who God has created you to become, you will change the world. You'll change your family. That's where it starts. 
You'll change your neighborhood. You'll change your workplace. You'll change everything because the power that works within you, within you is not you anymore. It's him. And listen, you put Jesus in any situation and things will begin to change. Right? And so what is this purpose that you have a part in? You have a part in God's time-spanning mission. So this began long before you got here, before I got here, before your parents got here, your great-grandparents, great-great, this began thousands of years ago. God had a mission. And his mission to redeem the world, he had to bring it to the world, and he found a place, or a man, I should say, to begin it with. And we call that man Abraham. Right? Abraham. Some 2,000 years before Jesus, God looked at a broken world and wanted a people, this was his passion, a people that was his, that would be his. He wanted a community that would be his. Because the world had gone into chaos of idolatry, worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, the elements. They had gone into selfishness where sexual depravity had destroyed an entire civilization. And God went and found among the people in the land of Samaria, uh, the Samarians, in a region called Ur of the Chaldeans, a gentleman named Abraham. And Abraham had, like many of us, no distinct qualities that made him a candidate. He was just your John Doe. But God appeared to him. And if you'll go to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, this is where the journey begins. Your journey begins. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You know why Israel is important today? Because of this man. God needed someone to touch the world through, a people to make his own, and he chose this man. You might think, well, what did he do different? Nothing. He was just someone that God knew when he spoke, he would listen. And so God chose Abraham. And the vision that he gave to Abraham was not for just him, but it was for a world to see what it would be like for communities to experience God's presence daily. From Abraham, as you know the history, Abraham is called out from Ur the Chaldeans, if you, which is modern day Iraq, and he travels, if you will see in your map, in your mind, he travels west, and then he goes north from Turkey, I'm sorry, from Iran or Iraq area to Turkey. And as he's traveling, he goes to a city called Haran, right? And as he's there, the Lord comes to him in a vision and begins to speak to him about the land that he will give him, right? And so Abraham at that point leaves his father and leaves his family because back in those days, family was everything. And the wealth of the family transferred to you for you have a successful future. And Abraham was of no, he didn't come up in a poor place. He was a wealthy man. He was in a wealthy family, I should say. And he left all of that to follow the voice of God that spoke to him. 
And as he's traveling, and, and he goes south from Turkey into what we would say modern-day Israel, as he's traveling south, only a few times the God speaks to him. So he's by faith believing the last thing God spoke to him, that God wanted to make out of him a nation. Small problem that we know, he has no children, right? He wasn't trying to be metaphorical. He didn't say, well, God will do it this way and that way. He had no understanding of how it would happen. And so he begins, like you and I do, to improvise and give God some suggestions. Well, maybe it's going to be my servant, Eleazar. You'll use him, raise him up. God says no. And he says, well, maybe, you know, Sarah comes up with a good idea. You know, have a child through my uh, handmaiden, through, through my servant, Hagar. And God says no, right? And God says, listen, when I gave you a promise to raise up a city, a community that loves and serves me, and it's going to come through you, it's going to come through your bloodline. And so as, as the history goes, Abraham takes his family, and as he's traveling, he takes his nephew Lot with him. Y'all remember this story, right? God didn't tell him to take Lot with him. He just took him with him because he wanted some family, right? And as he's there, this unique story happens. Lot goes to a region that we all know about called Sodom and Gomorrah. It's very sexually perverse, and all the, the, the idolatry of the community has infiltrated that place, and that's where Lot is. But then there's this unique thing that happens that gives us a glimpse into what happens in Abraham's mind as God is culturing him, if you will, preparing him to be a father of nations. And it's in Genesis chapter 18. Y'all still with me? So what happens is Abraham is outside of his tent. It is a year before Isaac will be born, and the angels of the Lord come to him. Three men, if you will, come to him, and they sit down with him, and they give him the promise, in, in a year's time, your wife Sarah will have a child. The promise is going to be fulfilled within a year. Yay! But the promise goes much further than Isaac. And as he's there, and they're talking, could you imagine what the discussion would be like, you and God talking? I know all of us think we'll have all the questions to unload, but listen, he shows up and you're like, I really don't have any more questions. Tell me something I don't know, right? Genesis chapter 18. After this discussion of Isaac coming, it says, when the men got up to leave, those are the angels of the Lord, they looked towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, listen, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. God's about to go send these angels to bring judgment on a city cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Forget all the, the, the external stories, but God is so in friendship with Abraham, he says, I need to tell him what I'm about to do because through him will be nations and his opinion matters. And as you know the story, and we don't have time to dive into it for the sake of time, but Abraham is there, and he knows his nephew, Lot, is there in that city. And he begins to negotiate, not as a man for a nephew, but as a father for a nation. Lord, would you slay the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous in Sodom? Would you slay them with all the wicked men? 
And the God of the universe bends his ear to Abraham and says, Abraham, because you've asked this, if there are 50 righteous, I will not destroy the city. And Abraham says, the King James Version, peradventure, what if it was possible there were 40, not 50? Would the God of all the universe, would you, the just God of all the universe, slay those 40 righteous men or women with the wicked? Surely you would not. And as we know the story, his heart is not merely for his nephew. What is he trying to save? A city. A wicked, perverse, idolatrous community. Because the heart of a father looks at a city, not for its flaws, but because he loves the people in that land. If he, Abraham, would be a father of nations, in this moment he shows what a father's heart of nations looks like. That is why God chose Abraham. Because he would raise up his children to think like this. What does that mean for us? In Galatians chapter 3, some 2,000 years from Abraham, the Apostle Paul takes up his pen to write the first letter to a New Testament church. Before Mark writes his gospel, Luke writes his gospel, John writes his gospel, or Matthew. Before there's any biographical information about Jesus and the purpose of the Jews in fulfilling the calling God gave to Abraham, Paul writes this letter to the Galatians. And he says this, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, for you are all sons of God through the faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This promise that God gave to Abraham, that through him nations would be born, but not just genetic lines, but there would be a nation that comes, communities that come, that serve the Lord, and God is their God, and they are his people. That is a vision God gave to Abraham that transcends to us as the heirs of Abraham that we are to create by the presence and power of God, communities, generations that serve the Lord to when people come into Orange, Texas, they feel Jesus because the God of Abraham is the God of community church and the people of Orange. That's the storyline you've been pulled into. You've been pulled into this as everyone who is an heir of Abraham. The purpose of God is not just to get people out of hell, it's for God to bring heaven to earth through his people. He didn't create the world to destroy it. He created us to redeem it. And that's his purpose. I say, well, Stephen, that sounds like a tall order, as we would say here in Texas. How in the world does this happen? In the light of the storyline we're woven into, we can only step into the doorway of this year with purpose when we align with this vision that God has for us. It's not a new vision. It's an old, old plan. 
but it has new ramifications, implications for us as a church. If God's desire has always been to live within communities, then this place, this place is a significant value on this one thing, one word. You ready? Relationships. Because when we talk about God dwelling in a city or dwelling in a community, what is the foundational place that that dwelling happens? It happens in relationships. If you're not good at relationships, you're not gonna be good at hosting God's presence. And I can't make that any clearer. When Jesus came to the earth, as we've celebrated this Christmas day, the one relationship he wanted to clarify to the disciples of who God was, he cast it in the framework of, he is your father. He didn't just say he's your God. He taught that God was and is the father relationship to humanity. And I say this with, with, with foresight into where God wants to take us as a church body. We must become spirit-led and healthy in relationships to see the revival we long to see. It does no good to fill this church up and you have chaos at your house. It doesn't. It does no good to have this sanctuary full and the power of God fall and worship happening and your sons and daughters are lost because the relationship is fractured. Revival is the restoration of those relationships. So when we say revival come, God, we wanna move in your spirit, guess where he wants to move first? In your house. More specifically, in you. Well, God, I want all them to change and then revival will happen. And here's the thing, they're all thinking the same thing about you. If they will change, revival will happen. And it's on our shoulders to humble ourselves and say, Lord, change me. Soften my heart. I know all of us have those relationships in life. We're like, well, God, when you straighten them out, then things will be okay. But let me tell you something. It's you that he needs to straighten out many times. And then things start getting okay. I'm always astounded as a, as a pastor and counseling people when, when people are eager to come and follow the Lord. I want to do all this great stuff for God and I have to have that somewhat serious talk that listen, it's not doing things for God that's gonna change your life. It's you allowing God to do things to you. And that starts in your house, in your marriage, with your kids, with your employer. If God can't show up there, the hope for a revival is just a distraction. It has to fix it there. And I remember conversations uh, that, that, that uh, I was able to be a part of with Pastor John Kilpatrick and the Brownsville Revival. And, and that was one of the, the um, difficulties that they faced in the Brownsville Revival is that the power of God was falling here, but marriages were still falling apart. Divorces were still happening. Fractures were happening and eventually the division and the strife in the home was not impacted by people were sacrificing their lives on the altar of revival, not realizing the revival had to come to their home to sustain. And listen, we can't make that mistake. We can have great services here. Power of God can fall. 
Worship can be awesome, but if it doesn't change your heart and how you treat your family, did it really do anything? No. And I'm not saying we shouldn't value the presence of God here. We should. In fact, we want you to get radically exposed to the presence of God over and over and over, but it has to change your relationships at home, at the workplace, when you're driving around town. It has to change there. And so where do we begin as we look at the year to come, the open door, the year of the open door? The first thing we have to open it, start with is say, I'm gonna start this year by closing the door of offense. I'm gonna start this year by closing the door of offense. Look at your neighbor and say that with me. I'm gonna start this year by closing the door to offense. Okay. I know some of you are like, I didn't really need to say that. I'm slightly offended that I had to say that. <laughs> Listen, we're just going to get to work right away here. Like, we're not going to wait another week. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm going to start this year by closing the door to offense. Let me give you a little tip. You close the door to offense, not God. You close it. Because if God closes doors for you, you have no more responsibility. You have to choose to close the door to offense. And don't let the enemy lie to you or your, your, your thought process go, well, I'll, I'll choose to not be offended when they change because now you've taken the power to put it in their hands for you to not be offended. You have to make the choice. Well, Stephen, I'll forgive them when they deserve it. Then you have no idea what forgiveness means. Because we forgive people, especially when they don't deserve it. That's why it's called forgiveness, right? We give them something they don't deserve. Well, what if they hurt me again? Pretty good chance they will. And you have to choose now to forgive and walk in a healthy place of not allowing offenses to fester in your heart. So we're going to close the door to offenses. Let me show you kind of just a picture of what the pathway of offense looks like. Usually it starts with somebody said something, somebody did something, and you get offended in your heart. Listen, Jesus promised, I'm still waiting to see it on a bumper sticker on the back of a car. Jesus promised this passage. He said, it is impossible except that offenses should come. Nobody ever claims that scripture. Jesus promised I'm going to get offended. Thank you, Lord. I believe it. He promised. You know why? Because people are going to hurt you. The most dangerous people I've seen in the Christian walk, and I've seen some dangerous people, are bitter people. Because God cannot speak to them. And the voice they think they hear that is the, they believe to be the Lord is their bitterness speaking to them. It's dangerous. We cannot move forward. You cannot move forward in your life until you close the door of offense. The Bible says like this in Psalms 119, great peace have they who love your law and nothing shall offend them. There's a place of emotional maturity where no matter what people do to you, you will not harbor offense. Say that takes a lot. It does, but it's possible. 
because the Holy Spirit that's within you empowers you to forgive, empowers you to not take offense. The pathway of offense, first thing that happens when you get offense, offended is, is you perceive something and there is a misunderstanding. Either you misunderstand or they misunderstand and offense is created. The Pharisees, when they were offended at Jesus, every time Jesus spoke, they would get offended because they wouldn't understand what he was saying. In clear, plain, Aramaic, or whatever language he spoke to them, they didn't understand it because they were offended in your heart. Offense has the ability to bend your perception to hear things that are not being said. When you have this thought, this is what they think, you are an offense. You have no idea what people think. Well, they said this because they think this. Or they did this because they think that. You have no idea what's going on in their mind. They could be thinking about the Dallas Cowboys when they said that, and you have no idea. But offense begins to bend your perception to be offended again. And you get stuck in the trap of offense and offense and offense. And then all of a sudden you're walking on the other side of Walmart when you see them. Because you think they're thinking about you and they're thinking of where is the aisle for eggs? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? It bends your perception. And then offense after it leads to misunderstanding will lead to, in your heart, anger and slander. Right? You get offended and every time their name comes up or you think about them, anger is there. Why? Because that offense has taken root. In fact, the book of Hebrews calls it a root of bitterness, right? It gets in there. And then what happens? Offense, after it leads to anger and frustration, leads to a broken reality. Like I said, it bends your perception. And then every conversation is then through the emotional lens of offense. How many of you have ever talked to somebody that's trapped in that? Every time they talk to you, they talk about how somebody hurt them. How somebody hurt them. They might not even say the name, but I remember when this person hurt me. Why? Because they're stuck in offense. What happens is continued offense leads to resentment. And resentment is a character flaw. It becomes attached to you like a cancer. And it keeps growing and growing. And resentment eventually takes over your life. Takes over all of your thought process. In fact, you're always the victim and someone is always the offender. And your day of deliverance is when God is going to set you free by taking care of them, and that day will never come. And even if God takes care of them, you won't be able to see it because you're so offended. Continued offense creates resentment. It becomes an identity complex, or as the scripture calls it, a stronghold of pride. Pride is the end result of offense. Proud people are offended and remain offended and are unable to change because now they're proud of their perspective, right? And listen, proud, pride is the thing that God detests the most. There's people in hell today, and I say this very graciously and with great reverence for the eternal ramifications, who are looking up to God in heaven shaking their fist with pride. They were right, and he's wrong, and it's just gonna be a matter of time till he sees it. Eternity is filled, the chaos of hell is filled with people who still believe, God, I'm right. You should have done this. 
I didn't know, or I wasn't responsible. I'm right. And the reason I didn't follow you was because of that preacher, that spouse, that kid, that employer. And I asked you to fix it, and you did it. So I stayed in my bitterness. It's your fault and not my fault. Pride is the end result of offense. You say, well, Stephen, how do you get out of that ditch? How do you get out of that grave? The only panacea for that wound is humility. When you say, God, I humble myself. I've been prideful. And listen, it's a prayer I've had to pray more than, than I can remember. I humble myself. God, I don't know why they did what they did. And I don't have to know why they did what they did. And I don't even need an apology from them. I'm going to humble myself and get out of the way so you can do what you're going to do in me. And I'm going to leave that all to you. And that's hard sometimes because, you know, we're kind of those people that want to see how things turn out. Listen, there's a great place of humility when you say, I don't need to know. I just need to keep my eyes on you, Jesus. I just need to keep my eyes on you. And I want to experience your presence again. So I'm going to leave that whole situation of me being offended of what they did, said, thought, whatever. And I'm going to seek your presence. Listen, Jesus, of all people, had every opportunity to live in offense. He's the son of God. Came in the form of a little boy in Nazareth to a virgin named Mary. When we read the scriptures, we don't see it. But the implications or the connotations that people made to him was very insulting. They called him the son of Mary, which implied he was a, a bastard son, born out of wedlock. Joseph is never mentioned in the scriptures after Jesus' birth because Jesus carried the offense that people took with him of being born out of wedlock, which in our culture today, we don't put a lot of negative pressure on that by the grace of God. But in that culture, like 50 years ago in our culture, women were looked down on regardless whether it was their fault or not, right? Mary carried that scourge her whole life. Jesus carried that scourge his whole life. He never clarified, by the way, I was virgin born, for goodness sake. There's no record of that. Now, the disciples do. He told them. But he never took it upon himself to clarify the misunderstanding because they were offended at him. He was not offended at them. Right? And many times, let me tell you something, God's promise for your life is on the other side of you getting over an offense. But the wall, or the little mohill, if you will, of offense will become an enormous wall of barricading you from God's will in your life if you don't humble yourself. So the way to get over it, as many of the times we think, is not to get bigger and louder and stronger. It's to humble yourself and say, God, I don't know the answer, but I'm gonna humble myself and walk in humility. In forgiving, you can open the door for the year to come. You have to pick up the key of forgiveness and unlock the gate of your prison. Forgiveness, let me tell you something, is a perpetual work, which means what? You have to do it again and again and again and again, right? 
You have to do it more than once because those feelings are going to keep coming back. And until you get master, masterful at forgiving, it takes a little bit of a ramp-up time, if you will. When people hurt you at first time, it's hard to forgive. And then that memory comes back, and then it comes back. And every time you have to say, I forgive. On this date, December 31st, Sunday morning, I forgave. And I let them loose. And I'm not going to say anything else about it. There's been seasons in our life where my wife and I, we've been through some things that, listen, in the ministry, it's hard. People hurt you. Not on purpose. They hurt you because they're hurt. And you have to forgive. And we had to set a marker. We're not going to talk about this anymore after this date. We're not going to talk about this anymore. We're not going to use it in examples. We're not going to tell stories about it. We're just not going to talk about this because we have forgiven. We've let this go. And what's even funner is when you bless the person that's hurt you as an indicator of how you've let them go. And we've done that. And guess what? It's freeing. One last point, and we'll wrap this up. Miss Grace, if you can come out. In our culture and in our time, blame has become the thing that has deflated the power of forgiveness. Well, I've forgiven them, but I still blame them for everything. Then you haven't really forgiven them. Right. I've forgiven them, but I'll never forget what they've done to me. <laughs> right? Or I've forgiven them, but I hope the Lord just takes care of it for me. And listen, when God becomes the person that does your dirty work, or that you hope does your dirty work, listen, you're not working in the kingdom concept of forgiveness. So Stephen, does that mean I've let them hurt me again? No, that's not what that means. Does that mean I let them abuse me continually? No, it means you might need to draw some boundaries and say this behavior I can't accept, but I forgive you, but I'm gonna move on from this. And, and there's more discussion to have on that that I don't have time for this morning. But healthy boundaries, which I think we have a small group for that, that Ms. Frankie and Bert are gonna do boundaries again, that's a great class to get into, right? But forgiving, it's a perpetual work. And blame is the thing that will def deflate the power of forgiveness. Blaming others takes the power you have and places it in the hands of others' behaviors, opinions, or words. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, because he's dealing with drama in the Philippian church, and he's dealing with contention and strife, as he writes this letter, he gives them an indication of how he has come to where he's at as an apostle of the faith. And now if you remember, of course, we look at the, the, the image of Paul through the lens of his apostolic leadership and who he was and the great things he wrote and the miracles and, and the, the sacrifices he made. But when the early church looked at Paul, they looked at him through the lens of, he's the man that murdered our parents, our children. That takes some power to forgive. It's hard when the, the consequence of forgiveness costs you more than you expected. Let me tell you a little secret about forgiveness. The forgiver always pays more than the one being forgiven. It costs him more. It costs you more to forgive than the one receiving it. But there's a slight little fine print with that statement when you forgive it brings more joy to you the forgiver 
than the one receiving forgiveness. No matter how elated they are that they've been forgiving, there is a greater joy in forgiving than not. You're released from their burden, their iniquity. Forgiveness costs God far more than you and I will ever know. Forgiveness brings to God more joy than you will ever know. That's the risk and reward of forgiveness. It cost him more. It cost you more to forgive. But the price is worth paying. Paul, in his letter here, the murdering Pharisee turned apostle. I mean, we read that in a few, few verses. Some 14 years had passed. And he says this statement in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. It says, not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold for that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Listen, there's a destiny that God grabbed you for. But you, to get to that destiny, for you to get to that destiny, you have to press on beyond the offenses, the hurt. Read on, he says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If we wanna see, if you wanna see God touch, transform your life, there has to be a point where you let go of the things behind. You don't have to understand it all. You don't even have to try to figure out how it's gonna work. You just have to let go of it. Let go of it. And if you'll let go of it, you can press forward into the high calling God has for you. And the enemy's always there to whisper behind your ear, well, don't forget this. Don't forget this. You'll never trust men, remember? You'll never trust those kind of people. You'll never trust a boss. You'll Listen, that's not forgetting, that's holding on. And you have to say, I have let that go. I have forgiven. There's a simple prayer I just want to lead you in. And if you want to kind of memorize it, keep it in your heart, it's a great tool to help you forgive and move forward. Why don't you stand with me as we wrap up this morning? And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to just pray this real one-sentence prayer with me, real small one-sentence prayer with me. And I believe this moment can become a door-closing moment for you. And I'm going to say it, and I want you to just repeat it after me, and I want you to say this to the Holy Spirit. Let's just start here. Holy Spirit, just say this to him. Holy Spirit, speak to me about the ones I need to forgive. Speak to me about the ones I need to forgive again. I want you just for a moment, just close your eyes. And the Holy Spirit, because he's so good at this, is gonna bring to your remembrance anyone that you need to forgive, specifically by name, those that you need to forgive. And if your first response is, I've already forgiven them, he's not bringing it back to your memory because you've already forgiven. It's because there's still some forgiving that needs to be done. Maybe it's an ex-wife, ex-husband, a spouse, a child, co-worker. They could even be someone from decades ago, the Holy Spirit's bringing back, you still need to forgive from your heart. 
And as he brings that name to you, and this is something you can do here with me right now and also later, but maybe he's bringing more than one name and you need to pray this prayer and believe it in your heart for each person. You're gonna put it up on the board and this is what you say. Jesus, I forgive, and you put their name there. Four, and then you tell Jesus what they did. We're not ignoring what they did. We're saying, I forgive them for this. And you tell Jesus, Lord, they lied about me. Lord, they took my stuff. Lord, they hurt my kids. Lord, they said these things. And you can unload on the Lord with all the emotion and all the pain that you have from that experience or experiences. Lord, I forgive them for what they did or said. They made me feel this way, unload on him. They made me feel ashamed. They made me feel broken. They made me feel guilty. But I choose to forgive them in obedience to your word. Bless them and remove every offense in my heart against them. I close the door of unforgiveness in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Stephen's podcast. To connect with us or to order his book, A Reason for Hope, visit stephensamuel.org. You can also find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, you guessed it, Stephen Samuel. Thanks for listening.